I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist and the host of this podcast, From Crisis to Connection. This is a podcast about relationships. The relationships with others, of course, but also the relationship with ourselves and the relationship with our higher power. I believe we experience our deepest joys when we're in harmony with these relationships. But when we lose that connection to ourselves and others through our own unhealthy behaviors like addictions, infidelity, secrecy, abuse, and so on, or we lose it by being betrayed by someone else's choices, it throws us into crisis. Getting out of crisis and living in connection isn't always straightforward or easy, but it is possible. And that's why every week I bring you incredible guests who share their life experiences and expertise to help you move from crisis to connection. Welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Today, we are going to talk about how to navigate a faith crisis. Now, my guest today is going to introduce some other ways of talking about this using other words, other phrases like faith transition or faith journey, other words that maybe expand the the understanding of what it's like for somebody who has adhered to a certain faith or practice or religion and then finds themselves questioning, doubting, maybe even wanting to exit. This can be a really challenging thing for individuals and couples as they try and figure out what are the new parameters? What are we supposed to do as a couple? How does this change who we are as individuals or who we are as a couple or as a family? And so my guest today is Tony Overbay, and he is a licensed marriage and family therapist. He's also a podcaster himself. He's got a great podcast called The Virtual Couch, and he's just done a tremendous amount of work on helping couples specifically deal with these types of faith crises, faith transitions. And Tony has been so generous and willing to come on here and talk about how he deals with these and how he works with these couples. In fact, he says that for the past 10 years, this has been mostly what he's worked with in his practice. And then he works with probably two to three of these couples a day. And so if you're interested in this topic, this is definitely the episode you're going to want to catch. And uh, in fact, Tony was great enough to say, we we got into our discussion and interview that I'll uh, share with you here in just a minute. As we were going along, we realized that we were running out of time and we needed to schedule a second interview, which was totally unplanned. And so I'm excited to come back and have him finish our discussion because we get into a lot of other stuff. This topic is very sensitive, very delicate, near and dear to a lot of people's hearts. But boy, if you're going to talk about moving from crisis to connection, a faith crisis is definitely something that a lot of people deal with, whether it's with their kids or with their spouse, but it's something that really does push a lot of our buttons. But the good news is, is that there is a way and that there's hope. So here's my interview with Tony Overbay. All right, Tony, well, welcome to the podcast. Jeff, I am very excited. You know, if I go look on your website, we're basically the same person, just you have a gorgeous head of hair. I mean, we both have a book <laughs> dealing with pornography, yeah. recovery, right? We've got, we both are EFT guys. We've got podcasts. So I don't know. I'm excited about this. Yeah, I know. I saw your stuff too. And I thought, oh my gosh. He's like my doppelganger. He's like my soul brother. Like we need to like connect and talk. <laughs> exactly. so. Yeah. I'm guessing though I'm probably old enough to be your dad. I mean, I'm, I'm oh, guessing that might be the case. Stop it, so. man. Stop it. No. I'm 47. I'm almost 47. How old are you? Oh, 51. Yeah, so it's yeah. Like that. Way older. Yeah. So much right. older. <laughs> that's right. All right. That's fair. Fair awesome, enough. Awesome, man. Well, I'm excited to talk about this topic with you today. It comes up all the time in my practice with clients. I'm here in Utah. A lot of members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and, and this issue of 
a faith journey or faith crisis, as most people call it, mm-hmm. comes up a lot with a lot of my couples that I work with, even families. And it's something that just is near and dear to a lot of people's hearts and really sensitive and delicate. And you know, I think also creates a lot of opportunities for personal growth, regardless of what, yeah. what side of this you're on. It just really is an opportunity here. But let's dive in with, I guess, some definitions first real quick. In your experience, why... Why do we use the word crisis? Why, like, why are we talking about it this way? You know, why is this so framed in this way? I guess is the best question. Yeah, it's such a good question, and I feel like the reason I love that one is I have moved on from faith crisis to faith journey, and I find that most people that are on the faith journey find the concept of faith crisis maybe a little bit, a little bit offensive or maybe dramatic, and and I don't know, and I think I feel like as we kind of get into the the material that I want to really dive into today. I think you'll see right where that fits in as well. I mean, I don't know if you're finding that same kind of that uh, that reactance when somebody says crisis, where at times the person going through it feels like, I don't know, I feel like by the time it's getting into a couple situation, the person's well on their journey. But then the person that's hearing about it often feels like, oh, this is a crisis. Yeah, so, that's been my experience I, too, you know. is that it's usually a crisis for one person, not the other. Usually the other person. Yeah, yeah. If anything, the person who's who's maybe going on this different faith journey probably had a crisis maybe months or years before and probably yeah. had to deal with it privately because they didn't know who to talk to about it or they felt a lot of shame or fear of rejection or confusion. They didn't want to cause problems. So they just kept going through the motions with their church or their faith, trying to keep mm-hmm. things the same. And then at the point it becomes a couple's crisis, right? Is like you said, usually yeah. a point kind of down the road. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I do, I like the term faith journey. That seems to match you know, the experiences that I'm, I'm seeing in my office and, and even friends and family members that are on those same journeys. Like I, I think the crisis word can be loaded only because it implies that somebody is, you know, it kind of creates like a good, bad, right, wrong yes. type polarity. And I, I just think that that it makes it hard to have stay in a conversation about it. Yeah. And I think as, uh, and, we'll, and I know we'll get to this a little bit deeper too, but as EFT clinicians, it really is not about, you know, it's about being heard. It's not about resolving the situation. And I think so often we want to fix it. And as soon as somebody hears about the faith crisis, the faith journey, they want to know, well, how do we address this right now when we're talking about it? And, and this is where I like to say, all right, we're getting into marathon mode, not sprint. You know, now we <laughs> yeah. really need to commit to tell me more. You know, I want to hear more about, uh, about how somebody got to the place where they're at. Right. People want to speed up and I want to slow them down. This is yeah. This is usually the tension that you feel is that there's this urgency to get this resolved and you know get back to some sort of a normal that feels comfortable for you know for gen- again generally both people but usually one person's pushing harder to kind of get some resolution usually the person who again has been surprised by this or has this sort of sprung on them yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah so anything else you want to say about that kind of defining this and and maybe what you know, just so our listeners can understand what exactly we're talking about here. You know, something just came to mind and, uh, and I'm glad you kind of paused there too, because I was thinking, okay, I can't wait to get to the rest of the things that we want to talk about today. But I will find that as somebody that I would, uh, I'm going to sound like an egomaniac here, but as someone that I've been doing specifically the faith journey work for well over a decade, when I worked as an intern, I actually worked for the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints. And this was one of the areas that I was handed. So I would go to all the trainings on helping people navigate a faith journey. And which definitely caused me to go through my own, which was pretty fascinating. And so I feel like sometimes when somebody isn't necessarily familiar, a therapist isn't familiar with working with someone that's struggling with their faith or going on a faith journey, 
oftentimes they will assume what this faith journey or faith crisis looks like. And so I'll have people in my office at times where they'll say, okay, I'm struggling with history or I'm struggling with culture. I'm struggling with whatever that looks like. And I know now I'm going to sit back and say, hey, tell me more about that. Where I've had other people talk about where they'll go in and say, man, I'm really struggling with my faith. And the therapist will say, oh, do you mean about things like this, you know, and introduce concepts that really don't necessarily resonate with that person. And so I found that it really, uh, the definition even of what a faith journey looks like can be so different to so many people. For some, it's about doctrine. For some, it's about culture. For some, it's about history. For So there's so many different variations, I think, of what a faith journey can look like. So that assumption that it's someone that just wants to sin or someone that just wants, that, that is struggling after they read one particular book or something like that, I think we need to to take a step back and just realize that everybody's faith journey or faith transition or any of those things is going to, you know, there's different as snowflakes maybe. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No kidding. And are we all on a faith journey? Really? I mean, I, yeah. I look at this and I think I love that word because I, I just feel like, okay, we all are on a journey. If we really believe we're working through this life and moving toward, at least again, from my framework, we're moving toward God or trying to get back to that place. And, and to me, that just, I mean, that's the journey. That's it. And, it, and there's mm-hmm. going to be surprises and new information and disappointments and questions. And I don't know how else to describe that. I think journey is a perfect word. Yeah. 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 I think so too. No, that's fantastic. I love the way you frame it. I think it's really supportive. And like I said, it, like we're talking about here, it really does open up a dialogue. And that's really what we need here is, is to learn how to stay in conversation, mm-hmm. stay connected, because this comes up in relationships. This comes up with people who care about each other. This is not, you know, about, you know, different factions battling against each other, trying to prove who's right and wrong. Yeah. It can turn into that. But really the, the core of it is it's people that love each other, that generally like are planning to share their lives together, maybe have children together. And, and it creates these, these questions about, okay, who are we? Where do we go from here? It, fr- mm-hmm. it kind of reframes everything. So, so if you're working with a couple, Tony, like what, where do we start with this? If, if a couple comes to you or if a couple finds themselves, you know, even some of my listeners are going, oh, yeah, we're dealing with this. Like, where do we start with this? Yeah. And, and if you're okay, I'm going to go down a couple of different paths and we're going to, they're all going to meet at some point and it's going to be a, a glorious reunion. Please, uh, let's I, I do it. Yeah, Jeff. let's go on the journey. <laughs> <Okay. party. laughs> so, so there's so many things that, that I think about with this. One is I like to do a very quick rundown on, again, as both of us love emotionally focused therapy, EFT, you know, it's, a, it's based on attachment. And lately, any podcast I'm doing, any interview I'm doing, I want to just cram in this, this real quick view of attachment. I think this kind of sets the table is one is that, you know, if you really look at what an attachment issue looks like, mm-hmm. when we are born, we come from the factory as a baby, we are programmed from God to we emote, we cry, and we get our needs met. So if you think about that, our wiring is set so that abandonment equals death. So we must, you know, we express ourselves, people jump, they meet our needs, and then we're safe. And so then we get into that, you know, what is it, Erickson's second stage of development. And now I say, welcome to the world of abandonment. So when we're in adolescence, now all of a sudden, we want to have candy before dinner. We want to stay up past our bedtime. We want to go to Disneyland. And this is where we're now all of a sudden being told no. And if you look at it from coming from that abandonment equals death, people meet my needs when I express myself. Now, all of a sudden, a kid's saying, wait a minute, what's, uh, what's happening here? And every, every kid, every adolescent is a little egocentric, you know, unempathetic person, bless their heart, who doesn't know how to self-advocate. And so they really do feel like they're center of the universe. And so this is where I say, two different things happen. There's an abandonment track, I like to call it. And what that one looks like is so now they go throughout the rest of their lives. And when people don't respond or meet their needs the way they want them to, 
they think, okay, what's wrong with me? And that's what starts this kind of this toxic shame cycle. So, you know, I must be unlovable. I must be broken. And again, these are things we're bringing from our childhood abandonment stuff forward. And then there's this, I call it the attachment track where that one is. Meanwhile, we're trying to figure out how do we show up so that people will meet our needs? Do we, are we the nice person? Are we the peacemaker? Are we the scholar? Are we the star athlete? Are we the uh, moody person? Are we the angry person? And so we're really just from, you know, again, from childhood trying to figure out how to get these needs met. And if people don't meet the needs, we feel like something's wrong with me because that's our programming. Right. And, and I always mention that when, when, when we're even setting the table for talking about faith journeys, because, you know, we're navigating those things too. We're trying to present this data in a way to our spouse so that they will still like us. So they won't abandon us because abandonment at our core equals death. And then if they aren't responding the way we want them to, now we've got that, um, something must be wrong with me. You know, when really we're presenting some data that now this person needs to deal with. So it isn't necessarily about us because we've been thinking about this faith journey or faith transition or faith crisis, like we were saying earlier for years. But now all of a sudden we're we're saying, hey, here's this thing. And we're not sure how to express it. You know, that's those childhood coping mechanisms, the attachment stuff. And then if they don't say, oh, okay, sounds great. Thanks for sharing. Then we think, okay, I must be unlovable or I must, I must be broken. Something must be wrong with me. So I love just kind of floating that out there to say, that's kind of what sets us up to say, we're scared to do this. And, and if it doesn't go perfectly, then we feel like, oh my gosh, this all or nothing thinking. And then I love acceptance and commitment therapy. And one of the biggest things I love about that, about ACT is, is the, hey, meanwhile, you're not broken. You're the only version of you that's ever walked the face of the earth. So you are a combination of your nature and your nurture and your birth order and your DNA and abandonment, rejection, all that stuff. So, you know, we bring so much into a relationship, this, our uniqueness, where, and if we go spiritual, we can say it's our, you know, our gifts of God, our talents, our abilities. And then we're trying to present it in a way that, you know, people will like us. And then if they don't respond the way that we think they will, then we think that something's wrong with us. So I don't know. What are your thoughts on that, Jeff? I feel like that's kind of, I love getting that stuff out there just to say, and now let's take all that and try to have this really intense, you know, conversation. And you can see where it can be scary. No, that's right on. I. I think it's impossible to talk about anything productively if we don't understand the forces that are at work here. And yeah, and I, I love it. I agree. I, lo- I love the way you talk about it, like straight from the factory, right? It's it is so hardwired. <laughs> it's it is not optional. We, is. we come with this fear of abandonment, and everybody just says, like, you know, oh, I think it's something wrong with me because I'm afraid of being alone. I'm like, so am I. Like, I think all of us are, <laughs> right? Yes. And they're they're often yeah. surprised core, when I say absolutely. that. They think like, oh, is this therapist? He's so self actualized that he doesn't need other people. And I'm like, no. Right. In fact, the older I get, the more I realize how much my relationships matter to me and yeah. you become much more aware of that, but it's always been there. So you're right. Like the whole thing of like, I mean, why I think why some people stay, like the whole idea of leaving the group, right? Like in a, mm-hmm. in a religion or a church or a community and, and the idea of, of not only just changing beliefs and being kind of differentiating from the people in the group, which you know all of us are doing to one degree or another as we get older and more mature, but for some people, it's an actual departing from the group and not attending, not socializing, not believing, not praying together, not not participating. Mm-hmm. And to the body and to the emotions, that can feel like you're going to die. And that's absolutely right. Yeah. It feels scary. It's abandonment. Right. Yeah. And then the people in the group are also having a very similar thing because when one of their own leaves, they feel afraid, kind of an almost yeah. like in a mirrored way. So yeah, to understand that attachment piece. To me, it's like the only way to really frame this conversation. There's a developmental piece, right, that we have to talk about, but there's also this attachment yeah. piece. So I really appreciate you bringing that up. 
No, thank you. I, I now feel like I have to cram that attachment abandonment thing into everybody. If somebody's helping me at the store and they're like, Hey, how's your day? I'm like, you know, you know how my day is? Let me tell you about abandonment, you know, or attachment. <laughs> and I'm glad you ask. And, and, and because I, it is, you're so right. It's so hardwired in us. And it so, is, it so is. from there, you know, and I don't know if this was even, if I'm still on track with the question, but I feel like we'll get there now. We, okay. Right. So now, <laughs> you know, when I, when I actually worked for the, the church, I thought it was pretty fascinating where you know, I would have people that would come in and I would find myself saying, well, I read this book and here's the answer to the question that you have. And shockingly, people weren't saying, oh, wow, okay, thank you. I feel so much better now, you know, knowing mm-hmm. that by the time somebody's coming into therapy or by the time they're expressing something to their spouse, I mean, they really maybe have been struggling with something or the nuances with something for a long time and they've been trying to find these answers. And yeah. I think this is where the most well-meaning leaders that say, hey, have you thought about praying a little more? Maybe read your scriptures a time or two more. You know, it's like, oh, I've been trying that for a decade, you know, and that has not brought the results I want. So, and I feel like that's where people start to feel that what's wrong with me story, that, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, exactly. Oh, no, you go. No, I was just saying like, it can feel so prescriptive, right? Like, and, and a lot of the times Absolutely. These, these answers get oversimplified for what feels like a very complex journey. And so a lot of people will, will respond, like you said, like, well, this is very simple. Just do this and it'll work. Yeah. And even if that worked for you, it really does invalidate the fact that this other person is not you and is having a, their own yeah. journey and coming from a different background and having different you know, DNA and everything. There's just so much going yeah. on there. I think it was Neil A. Maxwell that talked about, he was just referring to how God's perfect justice. And he just says, you know, he, God can take into account the circumstantial interplay of opportunities, limitations, our genetics, our temperaments. He went through this huge list of things and I thought, oh yeah, we're all so different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. We're all right? so different. We all have different experiences. We all have different opportunities. We all have different limitations. And all these things come into this conversation. And so just to apply easy answers to it is just really dismissive of people's just, experience. It is. And I love that word. It, it is dismissive where I feel like whether it's a spouse or a therapist that really we have to say, okay, tell me more. And, yeah. and I will get to some very solid ways to get there too. I promise. Okay. Um, so then I, feel, you know, especially when I was working for the church, one of the first things that I felt like then resonated when I was working with people through faith journeys was I was, I went to a training where there was this talk of the transcendentals, you know, there are these uh, things from philosophy and in particular, the concepts of truth, beauty, and goodness. And one of the first things I felt like really hit was this theory or concept that everything, all of us have a more of a, we are more truth, beauty, or goodness based people. And in context of the church at this training, they talked about truth was if somebody is really into the doctrines and the truth claims, beauty was the conference talks, music, you know, nature, and goodness was the people. And so, and I loved that. That one hit first as mm. far as something that resonated because at that time I had been teaching seminary. I think I did seven years of early morning seminary. Can't remember a thing. I mean, I am definitely not a truth person. You know, the when, and I learned later in life, my, my nice ADD diagnosis, if I try to just sit down and read scriptures for 15 minutes, I feel pretty. I feel a little bit less than a little bit what's wrong with me if I can't stay on task, you know? And so, but I love, I love a good conference talk and I can just sit back and listen to a special musical number and it brings tears to my eyes. And so in this concept, I mean, I always make the joke that we, we've we all had somebody in an elders quorum that they like moving people, but they don't ever participate in the lesson. You never see them give a sacrament talk. Like that's somebody that's steeped in, in the goodness as far as truth, beauty, and goodness. And so when I used to give a fireside on this, I would, you know, I felt like people would often when they would identify that maybe nothing's wrong with them if they aren't one of these truth people, you know, but they love the beauty or they love the goodness, it almost was a relief to feel like, you know, the people that really are these truth people 
that they, for them, it is read your scriptures more or, or maybe say your prayers more. For somebody that's a more of a beauty person, you know, it, it might be, all right, dive into some conference talks or really get yourself uh, one with nature and meditation or mindfulness. And, and you can also see the kind of the where that can go south. Whereas if somebody has their, if they are a, a truth-based person, you know, the doctrine or the, if that, if they kind of run into some things that really rattle them, they often then have the all or nothing thought of, okay, I'm out where this is where I will, I will say at times, okay, maybe now is the time to double down on beauty or goodness. Or you can see that if people get in arguments with people in their ward, that can, and if they are good, you know, these goodness people, now they're throwing out the beauty and the truth as well. Mm. So that was the first time where I felt like, okay, all right, we're starting to get a little something, a little, little structure that we can work with. So I don't know, do any of those identify with you? I'm curious, Jeff. Oh yeah, I'm a beauty person, big time. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, as I was listening, to that, I thought, oh, wow, that's, I'm kind of placing myself there. And I love that. I, I love the way to, to, to frame that. It's just, like you said, it's, I mean, it's, it's funny. I'm thinking about a, a, a colleague of mine, I guess I could say he was somebody I knew like 20 plus years ago in graduate school, but he really struggled with a lot of the truth stuff, but found that mm. he loved serving in the, the primary with the children. He there felt like he could stay yeah. there all day long. And made some wonderful contributions. Was really good to some of our kids, and I and I just, I just really appreciated the fact that like he could still be a part. He wanted to be a part of the community, so it mattered to him. But mm. found his place just in that spot, and didn't know what to do with the rest of it. But really loved, yeah, you know, just loved kind of being a part of the the community. And I, I think that, well, and and I often, oh, yeah, go ahead. I say it just opens up. It just opens up more possibilities, more conversations. It does, right? And and I feel like, uh, man, I was struggling with this at the time. And as a seminary teacher, and I would come into a gospel doctrine class, and somebody would say, "Hey, uh, there's Brother Overbay. Hey, tell us about this obscure story from the Old Testament." You're a seminary teacher, and I would think, I I have no idea. And so it would even have me at times feeling like I didn't even want to go to some of those classes or that sort of thing because I did. I was so worried about being called out on the spot. Mm-hmm. And then you know, this was one of those where it really helped me with this idea of of kind of this acceptance of. Okay, I don't think I will ever be the scriptorian, but then you can already hear, I don't know if you maybe hear the people in the congregation that might say, well, you just need to read more or you just need to, you know, have more faith. And I, now, you know, now go back to that abandonment and attachment stuff. And now it's like, oh, you know, I, I, I appreciate the thoughts and I'm so glad that works for someone, but I'm okay. You know, I'm, I'm the adult totally. now. I'm right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, totally. In fact, I have to tell you a really funny thing when, uh, when I was learning more about my ADD diagnosis. I remember this time where I'm reading in New Testament and I enjoy the New Testament. And I, I thought, man, what did they wear? Like, what, what were their feet? How dirty were their feet? And so then I went on some 20 minute deep dive on Googling New Testament footwear and, and it was fascinating. But what was cool it. about it was then I found myself wanting to see, okay, when I would talk about washing feet, did they take these sandals off or did it, you know, what, what was the, what, now I want to know where, when I would just sit there and say, okay, read for 15 minutes linearly and then get something out of it. That's where I would feel like, I don't like this, you know? Yeah. But when it was something <laughs> right, where if I was like, I could own up to, all right, here's what I, I enjoy. Here's what's important to me. Then things kind of, you know, they went a lot better. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I have some ADD too as well. And it's ADHD. And so like, <laughs> I'm like, again, one more reason we're, uh, we're, we're almost the same person in that way. I, uh... Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's in terms of like where to start with this, carry on with what you're saying. I love where you're going with mm-hmm. this. Like, okay. walk us through this. So, yeah. So here's where I feel like then things really start to make sense. And I feel like over the last decade, what I've, I've, so I'll touch on, you know, first of all, I want to set that stage with here's what our programming looks like. We're all individuals. And then I will touch often on the truth, beauty, goodness thing that has people start to feel like, okay, that's making a little more sense. 
But then the first training I ever went to on Fowler's, James Fowler's Stages of Faith, that's what then I feel like really put me in this position where I love working with couples and individuals that are going through a faith journey, faith transition. And to the point now where when I even worked for the church, I might get one a week. Now I'm probably working with two or three individuals or couples a day, every day, and have been for years. And it's been since I really adopted or really learned Fowler's stages of faith. So Fowler developed this, his stages of faith were based off of Piaget and Kohlberg's, you know, stages of life and stages of development. And Fowler was, and I should know this so, but he was a, was it a Baptist or Presbyterian minister, but also ran a psychology department at a university. And so he, and this was back in the eighties, and he did a tremendous amount of research on all encompassing belief systems. So it was, you know, everything from Christianity, Judaism. I mean, it was every, it was anything that had kind of a all in one, you know, complete belief system. And so he then comes out with these stages of faith. And let me kind of go through these. And I think that this, this is where I feel like things really get exciting. So um, stage one, this is little kids. Usually it's about zero to three and it's called intuitive or projective faith. And in this stage, this is where basically the projective part, I always say kids are down they're on the ground playing with their toys and parents say, Hey kids, there's a God, you know, projecting the faith on them. And the kid just keeps playing with his toys, you know, but now they're starting to hear, or they're, they're becoming familiar with the, maybe the concept that there's a God. Stage two is fascinating. That one's called mythic and literal. That's usually three to 12. And this is what stage two faith is. In this stage, children start to mix fantasy and reality together. And during this stage, their basic, they're kind of starting to, to form their basic ideas around God. And this is usually from parents or friends or family or society. And this is where I, I you know, I always say that this is the, the mythic and literal. So in this one, they have the same intensity of belief around the stories of, of Superman, Batman, Santa Claus, the tooth fairy, as they do with Jesus. So all seems a little bit mythical or all a little bit literal. And so then when people then move from there into stage three, this is where things get very real. It's called synthetic and conventional faith. And this is where people move on to the stage as teens, typically. And at this point, their life has grown to include several different social circles. And so our brain likes order, our brain likes patterns. And so at that point, we'll usually adopt some sort of all-encompassing belief system. And this is where I like to introduce the concept and not in any negative way, but of a box. So everything fits in the box. From cradle to grave, you know, or from pre-existence to the eternities, everything fits in this all-encompassing belief system or box. And so it can feel prescriptive, but this is our brain craves this information. And the, where things get interesting is people have a hard time seeing outside of their own box and they don't typically recognize that they're necessarily inside a belief system. And so at this stage, authority is placed in individuals or groups that represent one's beliefs. And so often, you know, are the people that have the final say. And so this is the stage where most, a lot of people remain. So if you think about this, and what I love when we start talking to stages of faith is there is no part of me that's trying to say that a stage three belief is better than a four or a five as we kind of get to those. Mm -hmm. But so it's more of just a a way to start framing a conversation. So you you can see that, you know, in, in Buddhism, in Judaism, in Catholicism, in Mormonism, there, if you really look at that, there is an all encompassing belief system in, in this box. So all the answers are there. And so for a lot of people, they find so much comfort there and things do fit neatly in the box. But then stage four. So what will happen is a lot of times, though, if people if their situations start to be a little bit different in the box, maybe one of their their kids comes out as gay or maybe they have a spouse that they find has has been there's infidelity or there's been addictions or 
you know, just or whatever the reasons and they start to feel like, man, I'm bumping into the sides of the box or what's wrong with me that I can't just fit neatly in the box because everyone else around me is. And this is oftentimes when they will first start to hear the, well, you just need to have more faith or you just need to pray or read your scriptures more. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. so people will spend years trying to, you know, what, what is wrong with me? Why can't I just fit in the box like everybody else? And that's where I feel like anytime we get to the what's wrong with me story, that's when, you know, I really have so much empathy for people. And so stage four, this one will often then happen in, I don't know, late adolescence or often into adulthood. And stage four is where things really get challenging. So people then start to, when they feel like they don't fit in the box or belong in the box, or they feel like what's wrong with me, they start to look outside of the box and they recognize that there are other boxes. And so they may start to critically examine their beliefs on their own. And then they often become angry or disillusioned with their faith. And the irony is that stage three people often feel like stage four people have become apostate or that they have been led astray without knowing what the stage four person's struggles have been to get them to feel the need to get outside of the box. And so the person in stage four often has a real hard time not then wanting to tell the person in stage three that, no, you don't understand, you know, you're wrong. And so you often have this, mm-hmm. you know, three and four, both in this all or nothing thinking. Right. And so four is where a lot of people exit the church and they, they're angry. And sometimes I, I talk about this concept of the, it's the, it can even be the burn the village down behind them, you know? And so they just are, are mad. And so a lot of times when I get people in my office or people are coming in uh, couples situations, the one person is in stage four, they're angry and they're frustrated. And now they want that their stage three spouse to know and understand that I'm, this is where I'm at now and you need to understand what's going on. So I don't know, do you kind of feel like you start to see those things? Is that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, that's where the crossroad is, right? That's where I think the tension is, which is, you know, that again, kind of like the, the box or the parameters around there. And what's funny is like, the box is different. I, I just, I've talked to people, it's different for almost every person, right? Mm-hmm. And wait, I mean, there, yeah. there are some, but even people have different ways of interpreting where those lines are and like what, Yeah. I mean, it just, it really is not as like clearly defined if you really look at it because people have so many different opinions. You know, you survey 10 people inside, you know, the LDS church and they'll all have different interpretations on, let's say, how you spend Sunday or, oh, absolutely. The, or like, you know, the, the health code or things like that. I mean, there's so many different ideas of what the box really is. And that's where all the, you know, that's where there can be a lot of judgment, criticism, people stop listening and it really does create divisions. And so, yeah, the tell me more, what's happening for you, boy, that can feel like a threatening question, but I think it's the question. It is, it is. And so, and I love that you're laying that out there too, because man, the part where people have different views on the health code or Sundays, that is such a good example of where now people then are arguing. So when somebody's angry and they're coming from more of this stage four mentality, mm-hmm. and again, I'm not trying to say one is better than the other. That's sort of thing. And we're about to get to five, which is is really a neat place too, but it can be a, okay, but you do this, you know, you do this on Sunday, but you don't do this. And, and this is where I love the concept of it's the term is psychological reactance. It's that instant negative reaction of being told what to do. I mean, that is why we can't say, don't think about a white polar bear because our brain's like, oh, I'll do whatever I want, you know? And, right. and I feel like psychological reactance is it's innate. It's within us. Mm-hmm. I feel like it is really what agency really is. Yeah. That it's, uh, so when then we're telling the person, no, you don't understand. You need to know this and you do this. Then they are already, the game is rigged because they're going to be <laughs> reactant to yep. whatever you're saying, which I think is what leads to the tell me more. So here's what, and again, I know I'm saying that I'm not trying to say one is better than the other. I mean, this is where I feel like people 
it breaks my heart where then people get to these places where they don't feel like they belong to the community that they so desperately grew up or want to belong to. Right. And so stage five is this place Fowler calls conjunctive faith. And people typically don't get to this place till a little bit later in life, which I could tell you, I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent, but here's what one of the biggest struggles right now is to get to stage five. You've typically had to have had enough of these good experiences, maybe in the box where you can draw upon some things from your community or your people. And so a lot of times people, because of the wealth of information that's out there, they don't have a lot of time in stage three and they quickly get angry in four. And so what five looks like. So again, Fowler says it's rare for people to reach this stage before midlife because typically there needs to be some significant amount of time in stage three to have the positive experiences to draw from. But this is the point where people do start to realize because of their own individual experiences that there are paradoxes in life. So they've begun to shed the what's wrong with me story and they begin to embrace the story of life more as a mystery. And so then they can revisit their sacred stories and symbols from their faith community. But now they can appreciate the positive experiences without being feel like they're being stuck in a theological box or feel like they're going to be swayed by the criticism of the three or the four. So stage five is a place full of empathy. It's compassion. It's Christ-like love. And the five person is not out to change the four or not to change or convince the three because they know that you have to go through these this journey to get to maybe more of a place of acceptance. And so what and there is I'll just briefly say there's a stage six called universalizing faith. And it just says it's rare for people to reach this stage. People do. And these are, you know, Jesus, Buddha, Gandhi, Mother Teresa. These are people that uh, live their life in full service of others without worries or doubts. So I always joke that okay, I got mad over the weekend at somebody that, you know, cut in front of me. So I, I'm far from stage six. But, you know, <laughs> you spend, you spend a, a long time in stage five. And what that can sound like and what's scary about it is it does take a while but because it can be the, okay, I want to be a part of this community. There are things that I love from my experiences in the church. So I'm not going to go with an all or nothing thought, which a lot of times stage four is hard because, and that's where I was kind of starting with that truth, beauty, goodness stuff where, you know, our brains and cognitive distortions and black and white and all or nothing thinking that we often then when we do get angry or we do get offended and then someone is saying, you need to do this different. It's really easy to just go all or nothing and then say I'm out. And so then I, and I really feel now, I mean, it's been hundreds and hundreds of people I've worked with on this that I've, I've gone down that stage four path with people. And if that works for somebody, then, then I, I'm not trying to force someone back in. But I often find that they've done such a, a black or white, all or nothing move with that anger and then that reactance from people in the box in stage three, that then they will get down that road a bit and then kind of say, man, I miss some certain things from my, my faith community. And so, but now at times they feel like, okay, but I can't go back. I mean, because now I'm going to get told, I told you so, or, oh, you know, whatever that looks like. And so stage five can be this place where someone can say, hey, you need to do this. And I always say, and I don't want it to sound condescending, but in stage five, this is where I do a whole lot of bless your heart. You know, that's, hey, uh, bless your heart. I, I love that that works for you, but right now that might not work for me. Well, and then you'll hear things like, well, you might not, might not get a really cool calling, right? And in stage five, it's like, okay, no, I hear you. That would make sense, you know, or so it really is more of this just empathy, calm, confident energy, Christ-like love. And I feel like uh, people really do have to go through quite a bit to get to that place. But it's a, you know, now, and this is where there's some belief in the stages of faith world of that, you know, almost every religion or every religion starts with an unorthodox belief. And then, you know, almost to a T, some 150 to 300 years later, I mean, it's kind of a joke. It's not like a real a solid time frame. But that it almost becomes this, does the church, you know, kind of begin to move a bit or do they, do they stay more orthodox? 
And if so, I mean, there's great examples of that, of, of even people, you know, Amish or uh, Hasidic Jews or people that, that kind of really stayed locked in on orthodoxy. But then there's also people like Orthodox Catholics, Orthodox Jews, where I talk often about in the Catholic faith, you can have some two people having the sacrament and one really literally believes it's the flesh of Christ and his blood that, you know, it, it transmutates in the mouth. And the other person says, man, this is warm grape juice in a, in a stale cracker, but these are my people. And so sometimes I feel like, you know, our people want that community. They want the right of passage. You know, I had a client once say that they don't want their rights of passage to be their kid going to junior prom. I mean, they really want the, the baptisms. They want mm -hmm. the confirmations. They want that as a family and they want the, the social capital that comes along with that. They want to be able to go to a family reunion and, and disagree, but still feel like they're part of the family. And so, you know, that's kind of where I often feel like thing, people, people want to get to. Yeah. So I just dumped a ton on you, Jeff. I don't know. How, how are you feeling? What are you thinking? I'm, I'm feeling great. How is everybody out there doing with what Tony's saying? <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I, I, wish, I wish we could like have some kind of a, a feedback mechanism here. Because, I know, right? I, you know, uh, to me, it's something that if, you're, if you feel like your brain was just melting, that's normal. It's okay. It's a lot of information. It's a lot of stages. But it go is. back and listen to it. It's so good. And it's really important to, to you know, organize this because- Right. To get into this black and white, like you're in or you're out, you're good yeah. or you're bad. Boy, that just isn't life. That's just not how it works. And I, no, I just don't it's think, really not. you know, it doesn't really allow for development. It's not, it's almost like we go from being like a little child to a, a fully mature senior citizen, right? There are stages, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I and like we that. all have to yeah. make room for everybody to, to be on their journey. And, but let's speak to the, the fear that the person who isn't yeah. going through that transition, like what they're feeling, what's this like for them? Why? you know, whatever stage they're in, there's going to be stuff that comes up for them. There's so much. Effort, and I feel like that is that thing we were talking about earlier, where the person that's usually saying, hey, I'm struggling, even if they've done a bunch of work and I've had people that I've been working with and I get them to a nice stage five, they're still afraid to talk to their spouse. So, I mean, it doesn't mean that somebody has to come to their spouse and they're angry and right. bitter and you need to understand. Right. But even then, sometimes they can come to their spouse at a at a full stage five Zen, you know, bless their hearts, Christ-like empathy and compassion mode. And their spouse is like, but wait, what does that mean? Wait, you, you know, I, I still don't understand. Yeah. And so it, it is scary. And so I'm really not trying to, I'm, I always joke that I'm the world's worst promoter, but I've been working really hard for a couple of years now on a marriage course. I, I call it uh, the magnetic marriage course, but it's based off of EFT. And I've got these four pillars of a connected conversation, which I feel like must happen. And you'll recognize these so much, Jeff, because it's so much EFT here. But pillar one, I say, is you have to assume good intention. So if your spouse is coming to you and saying, all right, hey, here's my struggle. The assumption of good intentions means that they didn't wake up and think, I know how I'm going to hurt my spouse. I'm going to spring this whole faith thing on them. You know, so if so, if your spouse is bringing that to you or if you're sharing it with your spouse and they're and they're upset or they're they're sad, you have to assume the good intentions that, man, they're trying to process this thing. So I feel like there's pillar one. Pillar two is you can't say you're wrong. You can't put out the vibe of I don't believe you. Because if you do, and you'll start to notice if we violate any of these pillars, I mean, the conversation is going to devolve. That's right. So even if, uh, all right, I'm going to assume the good intentions. They're telling me that they've had a faith journey. I can't say, and I've had plenty of clients do this, where they'll say that to their spouse and their spouse will say, no, 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 you're not. You've just been hanging around the wrong people or you've been reading the wrong things. Right. You know, right. right? So what are you, what's one supposed to say? So then pillar three is you have to ask questions before making comments. You can't just say, Okay, well, I just want you to know that I don't know if our marriage is going to survive, but okay, fine. Tell me what your experience has been. You know, you have to ask questions first. Tell me about your experience. Tell me more. 
And then sometimes even the hardest one is uh, this pillar four. I say you have to stay present. You have to lean in. A lot of times people can assume the good intentions. They cannot say the person's wrong. They'll ask questions and then they'll say, well, I guess we're not going to have the marriage. I always thought, you know, and that's where they can slip back a little bit sometimes into victim mode because they want their spouse to rescue them. They want their spouse to say, no, no, no. You know what? I won't read those things anymore. I won't, I won't think this anymore. I'll go right back to where it was. And so that's where I kind of feel like the EFT thing is gold as far as being able to have the conversation. And like we were saying earlier, I feel like the goal has to be, you have to put the, we'll resolve this on hold and it has to be just to be heard for a little while. And that's where I feel like it can be scary, but you know, to be mm-hmm. heard is to be healed. Oh, I, I mean, love that. I don't know. Yeah. What are your thoughts? To be he- Yeah. To be heard is to be healed. I love that. It reminds me of something Brene Brown said in her famous, uh, her very first TED talk she gave, The Power of Vulnerability. You can look it up on YouTube, but mm. she says in there, she was just as humans, like the second that we experience vulnerability, she says, we work so hard to make the uncertain certain. And, oh, I like that. Right. And that's exactly what happens <laughs> in these cases. It's in, in terms of like, well, what's going to happen to our marriage or what's going to happen with your, oh, your, your yeah. eternal salvation? What's going to happen to our children? What's going to happen to, it's like, we're wanting to like write the last chapter, close the book, make a decision so we can just get back to feeling secure again. But when somebody opens up about their journey, their transition, where they're going, boy, it just kind of is a gut check there about, okay, am I willing to stay in the uncertainty for a little bit? Am I willing to stay with this and like stay with this person? Because the truth is, is that they're not certain. And now we're being invited into a place where we can be with them in there, or we can go right to certainty and probably push away the relationship. I love that. I hadn't thought, I, I love that concept too. Cause the, with vulnerable, I didn't, yeah, with vulnerability, you want certainty. That's absolutely true. Right. And I, let me say this, cause I know we're going to run out of time sooner. We should do a part two or something. That's exactly what I'm sitting here thinking. Home. Like Tony, you're coming back right? for part home and two. away. Then you, okay. Or then you come on mine and we'll do a home and away. That'd be a blast. That's <laughs> what we got to do. Okay. But so I feel like one of the things I want to make sure we get from, if people are resonating with this or, but that doesn't mean that the person who has had the journey that I don't want you to feel like, okay, I can say whatever I want to. And now my spouse has to assume good intentions because I feel like there needs to be almost a, a warm up round of, you know, Hey, I want to be able to share some things with you, but let, how are where are you at right now with that? Yeah. Or cause I, cause we don't want to say you need to understand. That's where I kind of go back to the truth, beauty, goodness stuff. I mean, that's where I, I go back to the stages of faith is not about pulling someone out of a box or forcing someone you know into four it's not about that it really is about yeah tell me more sometimes people need some time to process and understand before anybody's going to throw out the hey guess what i've read and uh as a matter of fact i i typically say that yeah let's hold off on the let me show you what i've read for a little while let's kind of get into more of the take me on your journey you know take me on what caused you to feel uncomfortable in the box you know take Mm -hmm. me on the what was that like and what was your process and what were the times where you where you maybe sought help or what were the experiences that you heard from leaders or, you know, let me hear a little bit more about that. And then I'm going to have a little bit more runway to get to the, okay, that, you know, then what happened or uh, do you see where I'm going with that? Absolutely. Yeah. It's that whole, you know, are we going to just get so fixated on the content, the specifics, or are we going to really understand this person's process and their experience? And, and I also want to add this piece too, Tony, where I think it's so critical where the person who's kind of having this transition in my experience, often feels like they they want the microphone. They really want to be able to share and talk about this. Oftentimes they've been yeah, sitting on point. this for a long time. Yes. But I think it's important if this is going to go well for them to pass the microphone over to their partner so that they can that's also good. check in with them and be like, what's this like for you? How are you doing? So they both can kind of take care of each other 
because they're now both having an experience that neither one of them wanted, right? I've never met anybody yeah. who said like, you know, I woke up one day and thought, you know what? I wonder if I can just <laughs> like add a bunch of strange things into my marriage and just go on this no, journey that I, right. yeah, no, it, this is uninvited. Most people don't expect it. And yeah. so I think that compassion going back and forth is really important. And I think I love that. I love that. And uh, because eventually, and I think in one of the questions when we were trading an email too, that it was even just, I, this might sound overly simplified, but when, you know, what do we want couples to know when they start to experience this, that there is a way that there is hope. Yeah. And I feel like oftentimes yeah. they just don't believe that's the case and they get online and they Google and they this and they that. And, and it's just like, man, you know, this is not going to go well. And I'm, that's where I feel like, okay, I really want people to understand that there is a way and it is to be able to communicate through these things and not have the goal right now of resolving. The goal is to be heard and you nailed it. It is scary. And uh, I did a podcast a couple of weeks ago just on codependent versus interdependent relationships. So when we look at all that attachment abandonment stuff, when we look at all that acceptance and commitment therapy stuff, we really have to realize we're an individual showing up in a relationship. And I love with EFT, Sue Johnson says, we're designed to deal with emotion in concert with another human. So it's not saying you're just you and they're them and good luck. But it's the when we realize that we are these two different people. Now, there is so much power in saying, all right, let me take you on my train of thought. Here's where mm -hmm. I'm at. What do you think? And knowing that that person doesn't have to say, well, you're wrong. They can say, man, tell me what that's like. OK, I feel like or this is my experience. And that's a version of a relationship that I don't think people know until they go through struggles and they have to get there. And then it's the thing where this faith journey, faith transition, faith crisis ends up, I get to see people on the other side of that, where now they communicate honestly better than they ever have before. But you're absolutely right. Nobody said, hey, what's the best way for us to improve our communication skills? Let's have somebody completely throw a, throw know, a 180, right? All this stuff into the, <laughs> yeah, right. But really yeah. there is a process and there is hope and people can get to that as well. I love it. Okay. So can we do a part two? Oh, I would love it. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah, I, I have- talk for days, Jeff. I know. I have so many other points I want to go over. I want to talk about, you know, just some more, I just want to get some more specific kind of tools and just ideas for couples, but also how these couples that have children, you know, oftentimes mm -hmm. one of the biggest crises is what do we tell our kids? You know, I, I'm teaching them this yeah. and this is what we signed up for. And now we are going this way. And how do we navigate these, you know, these lessons and imparting values? How do we handle outside family, friends, other people, the community? And just really more examples hmm. of how to navigate this and give people hope, especially, and give them tools. And so that will be, I, let's do that in part two. Let's do it. Okay. okay no, let's do that. Awesome. And, we'll uh, schedule that. Because I, 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 I just say, I've got all the answers. I mean, I do. I, we, we can solve all those problems, Jeff. I mean, awesome. it's really good. Yeah. I love it. Hey, and I, and I will say too, when I was doing a, the training for a bunch of the therapists um, with the church, I did come up and again, I'm so, I feel like I have to apologize for having somewhere that someone could go, but I'll send you a link that you can maybe put in the show notes. And I do have my own version of Fowler's Stages of Faith chart, like yeah, a PDF please. chart mm -hmm. that they could go get and download and that sort of thing. Absolutely. And, uh, no, I want to, I want to share whatever resources you've created. People need help. They need answers. And so I'm really grateful yeah. you have this. And there's a way. Resource. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Awesome, Tony. We will circle back for another episode. Let's do it. It was a pleasure and I can't wait. Let's make this regular, Jeff. Awesome. Thanks, man. Stay tuned for part two of this interview. I'll have that on for you guys next week. And if you want to connect with Tony and all the great work that he's doing, he's got some online courses. He's got his fantastic podcast called The Virtual Couch. You can find him at TonyOverbay.com. And I will put a link in the show notes so it's easy to find that. And he also does have a resource there with the stages of 
growth there, the, the, the faith stages that he talked about on here that are available for you to download. So go check all of that out and spread the word and pass this podcast along to anybody who you know is dealing with these kinds of things. We want people to get resources. We know how painful this is. We work with it all the time and people don't have to keep suffering. So we want people to have solutions and a way forward. Once again, thank you, Tony. I look forward to connecting with you again and setting up a time to go through part two, where we'll specifically talk about working with kids, working with other people in your family, friends, and your community to help make this a smooth experience as much as possible so that people can stay in connection, can stay in relationship. I want to thank all of you, as of course, for all of your great support of the podcast. You can also head over to my website, jeffstewart.com, and I've got plenty of resources there, past episodes of the podcast, a weekly relationship column that I answer a new question every single week and put it on my blog there. And then, of course, I've got online courses and resources to support you in rebuilding trust and strengthening marriage and dealing with all kinds of issues, pornography, other things like that. So would love to offer support and be a part of your solution as well. And so please go check that out. And I'm very active on Instagram and Facebook. So please follow me there at Jeff Stewart and stay connected and reach out. Drop me a DM or comment or send me an email. I'd love to hear from you what uh, things you need, what things have been helpful and supportive. It, uh, it really does matter to me. And I love hearing from my audience and want to connect with all of you and make sure that you're getting what you need. Thanks for everything, guys. You're a fantastic audience. It's just such a joy and a pleasure to be with you every single week. And I look forward to connecting with you in the next episode as I meet again with Tony for part two. Mm-hmm.